True Blue football fans in Baltimore still grieve when they recall March the 28th, 1984. On that snowy night, the unthinkable happened. One of the NFL's most storied teams, the Great Colts, snuck out of town in the middle of the night. The Colts were the team of football greats, John Unitas and Raymond Berry and Lenny Moore, as well as that legendary coach, Don Shula. Yet under the cover of darkness, Colts owner Robert Ursay hired the Mayflower Moving Company to clean out the team's offices and drive their equipment to Indianapolis. An NFL's perennial powerhouse skipped town. Ursay's clandestine operation to relocate the Colts was an attempt to avoid the negative firestorm that came later from the Baltimore media. Following the Colts' infamous move to Indianapolis, Ursay said, People of the press were hounding my family for two years, and I wasn't about to take any more hounding. The Colts were dogged out of Baltimore. In a sense, this is why Paul and his pals left Thessalonica. Paul had spent just three weeks in the city and had achieved great success. Yet like the Colts, Paul left town to avoid a firestorm of hostility. Acts chapter 17 tells us the story. When Paul first arrived in the Greek city, he went straight to the Jewish synagogue. This was the custom that had been modeled by Jesus, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. Paul reasoned there in the synagogue with the Jews from the Old Testament. Their prophets had predicted that Messiah would die, but then rise again. In light of recent events, who could this be but Jesus of Nazareth? After just three Sabbaths, some of the Jews believed. But Paul made his biggest inroads among the local Greeks, and especially among the desperate housewives of Thessalonica. That's right. He had a great hearing by the desperate housewives, Acts 17 verse 4 tells us, a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, those desperate housewives, joined Paul and Silas. Apparently, there were Greeks in Thessalonica who had tired of their religion's polytheistic nonsense. These folks recognized that the Greek pantheon of gods was just silly superstition. They were seeking the truth. And they had come to the synagogue of the Jews for answers. At least the Jews had narrowed it down to one God. But when Paul preached Jesus, man, it all made sense. They could see that the predicted Messiah of old was none other than the carpenter from Nazareth. Thessalonica was a place where the good news had traveled fast. But this is where the plot thickens. For verse 5 of Acts chapter 17 reads, but the Jews who were not persuaded became envious. You see, Paul had more converts in just three weeks than the rabbis there had had in 30 years. And they became jealous. Paul's success angered them. And so the rabbis went out and they hired a few local thugs and they stirred up a mob and they stormed the house where Paul was staying. Thankfully, Paul wasn't there. But they grabbed the owner of the house. They had poor Jason arrested. And they charged 
him with harboring a criminal. And what was Paul's supposed crime? Well, the Jews said that he violated Roman law by encouraging people to bow to a king other than Caesar. Oh, this was enough to set the whole city into an uproar. Everyone knew that if word got back to the Roman officials that this kind of thinking was being espoused in Thessalonica, there would be dire consequences. Economic sanctions might be imposed, even martial law. Oh, it had been a crazy few days in Thessalonica. And you got to love the unintentional compliment that Paul's enemies pay to him. When the Jews and their lynching mob try to justify dragging an innocent man out of his house for no reason, they explain to the town council, they say, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Wow. Paul and his pals, they had flipped the world topsy-turvy. Christianity, it wasn't just a Jewish phenomenon, nor was it just a Greek curiosity. It had taken the whole world by storm. There wasn't a village in the Mediterranean world that wasn't interested in the power and beauty of the Christian message. Same is true today. When people understand the gospel, oh, they're attracted. I like how one man puts it. The gospel faithfully preached meddles with everything else on earth. The gospel, it critiques every political thought, every social structure, It holds judge and jury over every lifestyle option. It wiggles its way. The gospel wiggles its way into every heart. It gets under everybody's skin. There's not a crevice or an opening anywhere that isn't filled with the gospel. Its ramifications are so far-reaching. The gospel changes people and marriages and relationships and communities and cultures and even nations. The gospel will turn your world upside down. If you trust its message. Well, finally, this wild day in Thessalonica, it ends when Jason, he posts bond and he heads home. But it was now obvious that Paul's future in this city was limited. He was a wanted man. It was best that he just leave quickly and quietly. And so in verse 10 of Acts chapter 17, we're told, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, where the people were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Like the cults, in the middle of the night, under the cover of darkness, Paul and Silas had to sneak out of town. The Christian cults, they moved from Thessalonica to Berea. And yet in the days to come, though Paul had been run out of town, his heart kept running back to these Thessalonians. He had left behind there a strong church, He'd been with them a paltry three weeks, but it hadn't taken long for the power of the gospel to have its effect. A healthy church had been born. And yet because of the brevity of his visit there, there was much that Paul didn't get an opportunity to explain. He felt that he had left the believers under-equipped. And so to shore up what was lacking in their discipleship, Paul sent Timothy and Silas back to Thessalonica. In the meantime, he departed to Berea and then on to the classic city. Oh, that great city of Athens. He probably went there to celebrate a big bulldog victory. Probably is what he did. Go to Athens. You get it? Athens? You get it? Six months later, Timothy and Silas, they rejoined Paul 
Now Paul is in the Greek Isles. He's at the port of Corinth. <coughs> His trusted assistants... <coughs> oh boy. Hold on. It's just that uh, donut thing I was eating on the way back over here. His trusted assistants now have reported back to him in Corinth. They've reported on the status of the church in Thessalonica. And in response, from Corinth, all around the year 51-52 AD, Paul sits down with quill in hand and he pens a letter to a church he knew only so briefly, but he loved ever so deeply. 1 Thessalonians begins, as does most ancient letters, with a signature In antiquity, letters came in the form of a scroll. If the signature had been at the bottom, man, you would have had to unroll the whole document just to find out who it was from. So ancient letter writers were very, very careful to pin their name first at the top. And so here it reads, Paul Silvanus. This was a Latin or Roman form of the Hebrew word Silas and Timothy. These were the authors. Silas was Paul's companion on his second missionary journey. They had left together from Antioch. Timothy had joined them in Asia or in Lystra. The Thessalonians were probably more familiar with Silas and Timothy than they were with Paul. They had certainly spent more time with them. Well, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, 2,000 years later, Thessaloniki is still a well-known Greek city. It's the second largest city on the island. Thessaloniki has a population of well over a million people. ...cities that had survived until modern times. In the first century, it was an important Greek city because it had an excellent harbor. Its original name was Therma for the hot springs in the area. Perhaps Thessaloniki's most valuable natural resource was its location. It was on the Ignatian Way, that great road that linked Rome with the east. It was said of the city of Thessaloniki, it lays in the lap of the Roman Empire. It was the hub. Everything revolved around Thessalonica. Prior to Paul's visit to the city, it had been steeped in paganism for 400 years. Imagine that. It was a dark place. And it was a testimony to the power of the gospel that after just three weeks, after 400 years of paganism, after just three weeks of Paul preaching among them, he could now write to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. A church had been born. And here again is Paul's familiar custom. He greets them, grace to you and peace. Grace, or charis, this was the typical Greek salutation. When a Hebrew approached someone, he'd use the welcome, Shalom, Shalom, y'all, if he was from southern Greece. Shalom shalom meant peace. And now Paul combines the Greek and the Jewish greetings. And like apples dipped in caramel, he takes these two terms And he dips them in some thick, tasty, juicy theological meaning. 
He begins his letter as the Thessalonians began their life in Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. A conversation occurred on a bus one day. A woman was immersed in this religious book that she was reading. When the person next to her, he asked her, he said, what are you reading? She says, it's a book a friend gave to me. She said it changed her life. Oh yeah? What's it about? Well, it was obvious the lady had just started the book. She had to flip to the table of contents and she started reading the chapter titles. She said, discipline, love, grace. That's when the stranger stopped her. He asked, he said, what's grace? The lady answered, I don't know. I hadn't gotten to grace yet. And this is the problem with many Christians. For some reason, they haven't gotten to grace. Don't you know in the Christian life, God's grace is first base? In some ways, I understand our deficiencies, though, when it comes to grace. It's such a foreign concept to us. The world around us is so full of ungrace. You know, from an early age, most of us were loved with strings attached. Love was made conditional. It was based on our pedigree or our behavior or our compliance. Love had to be earned, but not grace. Grace is a love we can never earn. We could never deserve. You see, grace is an exclusively Christian virtue. Only God loves this way. Only a God of grace could have dreamed up an idea so liberating, so revolutionary. You see, God handles his people with grace gloves. Receive his grace in the person of Jesus, and there are no other conditions. His love is full and free. In contrast, the world we live in is all about performing and achieving and carrying your weight and measuring up. Oh, there's little tolerance for failure. Grace is just the opposite. Under grace, Jesus carries our weight. He's the one that measures up to God for us. He performs. He achieves. All we do is ride on his coattails. And when we fail at that, his grace is more than sufficient to forgive us. Hey, our standing with God, even the fruit in our lives is the result of God's grace. It's true. The Christian life is designed for grace to come first. You need a firm confidence in God's grace or everything else in your Christian life will grow crooked. You won't get it. You'll live confused and frustrated. You see, the Christian life is no sweat. Jesus did all the sweating for us. He even sweated great drops of blood. Our job is to simply rest in Him. Miss grace and you'll want to relate to God the way you relate to your boss or your credit report or your coach or a demanding spouse or a hard-to-please parent. You'll be plucking all the strings, hoping to get them right, and you'll never know real peace. This is why Paul is very intentional. It's when we understand grace that we begin to experience his peace. It's always grace, then peace. In verse 2, Paul begins the body of his letter. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers. Remember, Paul had met, just met the Thessalonians. But he had seen God's work in their lives. The transformation that had occurred took place in such a short period of time. It was a testimony to the power of the gospel. 
and to the work of the Holy Spirit. The report that he had received from Silas and Timothy had only reiterated the legitimacy of their faith. And now Paul thanks God for these Thessalonians. He even, he even tells them how much he's been praying for them. Though he had to leave abruptly, he has not ceased to pray and to support them in prayer. And then he recalls what their early faith looked like. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Boy, the believers in Thessalonica, they were really a model church. They brought Paul great joy. You know, there were some churches that gave Paul a lot of trouble. I mean, those Corinthians, man, they were misfits, they were mischievous, they were, they were the Christians gone wild of the ancient world. That was the Corinthians. Paul referred to the Galatians as, my dear idiots. That tells you what he thought of them. The Colossians, they were the gullible ones. They were gullible to false doctrine, like a big mouth bass. They bit into the lies, hook, line, and sinker. But the thought of the Thessalonians, it only brought joy to Paul's heart. Paul notes, notes three outstanding qualities that this young church possessed. Their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. Author R.C. Lucas calls faith, hope, and love apostolic shorthand for genuine Christianity. When the apostles wanted to describe healthy, growing, vibrant Christians, they referred to their faith and their hope and their love. Notice first, Paul remembers their work of faith. You know, in James 2 verse 26, we're told that faith without works is dead. A faith that isn't active, that never rolls up its sleeves to act on what it believes, isn't a real faith. But you know, the reverse is also true. Works without faith is also dead. I mean, just doing stuff for God is of no value unless our effort gets coupled with faith. God's work done in our own strength is only going to come up short. We need His power. We should always serve God with the anticipation, with the faith that He is going to work through us. That He's going to take our five loaves and two fish and use them to feed 5,000. That Jesus Himself is going to multiply our meagerness. Whenever we work, it should be a work of faith. And then second, Paul remembers their labor of love. When Paul started the church in Thessalonica, man, he had a nest full of eager beavers. I mean, these guys wanted to teach Sunday school and usher and play on the worship team and help clean the building. But here's the kicker. It wasn't just because Paul promised them free donuts and coffee back in the brook. No, no. Holy donut, no. They serve because they love Jesus and they love the people around them. The believers in Thessalonica, they were motivated by love. I like what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 tells us, For the love of Christ constrains us. It's the love of Christ that motivates us. Some folks shoot from the hip, but the Christian always shoots from the heart. You should never find a believer just going through the motions, just serving out of duty. A Christian's labor is always spurred on by love. And notice third, the believer's patience of hope. For years, I watched my dad endured work-related difficulties. He would turn down other jobs. He'd saved up his unused vacation days. And why? Well, he was getting ready to retire. 
It's amazing. A future hope helps us endure a daily stress. And this is how you live the Christian life. What sustains us in the storm? What causes us to resist the devil's temptations? What prompts us to sacrifice a temporary pleasure for the promise of a better reward? What causes us to do these things? It's our hope in heaven and in God's blessing and in God's faithfulness. It's just a patient, plodding, waiting, persisting hope. Hey, hope is our only hope. In the tough times, don't you panic. Don't you say, oh, here we go again and capitulate to feelings of hopelessness. Don't do that. Have an enduring, battling, overcoming hope. Have the patience of hope. Well, the Thessalonians, they had all three. They had a work of faith and a labor of love and the patience of hope. And to Paul, this was proof of God's work in their lives. He writes in verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election from God. The Old Testament reserved this term, beloved of God, for a special few. But in the New Testament, everyone who's in Christ has achieved this special status. Did you know there's no such thing as a second-class Christian? Did you know that? Unlike U.S. Airways, yeah. Unlike U.S. Airways, the flight to heaven, number one, it gets you there. And number two, it's never divided into coach and first class. Did you know when you arrive in heaven, you'll arrive as a beloved brethren? You'll arrive in first class. I love Paul's gracious heart here. He's known these folks just a short time. Remember, Paul's a Jew. He's a Pharisee. He spent his whole life in temples and in yeshivas and in synagogues. These Thessalonians, they were Greeks. They were pagans, man. They spent their whole lives in bathhouses and brothels and before idols. Paul and the Thessalonians, they came from radically different backgrounds. Yet here he calls them beloved brethren. Such is the power of the gospel. Man, what happens to us in Christ, the status we receive, the glory we share, the love we're shown, it obscures everything else that could divide us. Polar opposites, even mortal enemies, end up beloved brethren. Man, you even have a church with a, two pastors. One's a bulldog fan, one's a tech fan, and yet they work together in harmony. Isn't that incredible? And notice what makes this possible, verse 4. Your election by God. Now you should know that the Bible teaches two seemingly contradictory doctrines. On the one hand, there's God's predestination. On the other hand, there's man's free will. God chooses, but man has a choice. God elects some people to be saved, and then the saved elect God. So which is it? Well, the biblical answer is both. It's both. The Bible's crystal clear. Ephesians 1 verse 6 and a host of other verses teach us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And yet when you read the life of Jesus and when you study how he interacts with people, every time he offers eternal life, he always makes it a matter of that person's choosing. The woman at the well, she had to decide whether she wanted to drink of that living water. The rich young ruler, he faced a heavy choice. Nicodemus was told, whosoever believes in him. 
Jesus' own disciples, they had to choose to take up their cross and follow him. You see, when Jesus encountered folks, he required them to make a choice. But as soon as they chose to follow him, he assured them that God had chosen them. I don't understand it. You know, here's where we get into trouble. When we try to reconcile what God doesn't bother to reconcile, that's when we get in trouble. Apparently, getting it all figured out is not near as important to God with us having faith and trusting in it and trusting Him. I've heard it said, try to explain election and you'll lose your mind. But try to explain it away and you might lose your soul. This is what the Bible teaches. It presents election as a comfort not as a cop-out. You can't say, oh, God didn't choose me. That's why I'm not saved. Wait a minute. The Bible says you have a choice. Well, but I don't want to follow God. Well, maybe you're not chosen. But it, you can't blame God for it. It's because you didn't choose. I mean, the Bible says, whosoever will may come. You know, salvation is a two-sided coin. From the one side... From our viewpoint, from our perspective, it's all up to us. Better choose correctly. But from God's perspective, it's all up to Him. You know, when we get to heaven, we're going to walk through the gate. And in front of the gate, it's going to say, whosoever will may come. And then when we go through that gate and look back on it, it's going to say, chosen before the foundation of the world. Here's what God's election of the Thessalonians meant to Paul. He'd spent three weeks with these folks. Not a long time by anybody's standards. I mean, it takes more time to grow tomatoes. And Paul's hoping to grow mature Christians. Yet his confidence is not in his own efforts. For he knows that God has a stake in these people. God chose them before the foundation of the world. God knew them long before he came to Thessalonica. And because God chose them, he's going to complete his work in them. You see, this is what makes me so hopeful about you. I don't know you that well. You may be new to Calvary Chapel. Perhaps you've only been coming for three weeks. It takes far more time to get grounded in your faith. But here's my confidence. God is at work in you. Because if you're in Christ, he's chosen you before the foundation of the world. God has plans for you before you were even born. You're his project. And God will always see to it that what he starts, he finishes. Well, Paul remembers his time in Thessalonica, verse 5. He says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. Remember prior to Paul's visit to Thessalonica, he'd been to another Macedonian town, Philippi. And there miracles had accompanied his ministry. He had delivered a slave girl from a demon. After being falsely accused and illegally beaten, an earthquake had shook up the prison that was holding him. Bars rattled and locks sprung open and gates unhinged. A jailer was even saved. No doubt word of such phenomena spread. It paved the way for Paul to come to Thessalonica. You know, I suppose that after a few miracles, people are a little more interested in what you have to say. The supernatural can garner people's attention and draw a crowd. Rubberneckers and ambulance chasers all come out for a miracle. But I like what Paul points to as their source of much assurance. 
It was the character of the messengers that had brought credibility to the message. Paul reminds them, you know what kind of men we were among you. Oh, we all want to see miracles. But what's really needed in the church today is not necessarily miracles. What's far more important are men and pastors with integrity. There's a troubling disconnect in today's church. We've separated the message from the messenger. Oh, we've got a lot of characters running around in our churches today, but they don't have much character. We got pastors with bling. Righteousness is just not as sexy. You see, here's a major problem. Churchgoers today are more attracted to ability than to integrity. Thus, the entertaining personality, the clever presenter, the celebrity spokesman, he draws a larger crowd than the faithful servant. Hey, just because a guy puts buns in the seats doesn't qualify him him to lead in the church of God. Paul hadn't been in Thessalonica very long. But for the time he was there, he had lived among the people. They had witnessed his life firsthand. They saw how he treated other people. They saw how he handled money. They saw how he carried himself around town. Always remember, the gospel of God's grace is truth, regardless of who presents it. But it is a lot easier to believe when the messenger is believable. Notice verse 6. And you became followers of us and of the Lord. And you know, at first glance, when you, when you hear Paul say that, it sounds a bit arrogant on his part. You became followers of us and of the Lord. But you know, think it through. When a new believer comes to Christ, how much of the Bible does he or she really know? Probably not much. Their immediate influences come from the Christians around them. Whether we like it or not, folks do follow us and the Lord. And this is why we need to live godly, faithful lives. People are watching us. Newer Christians will watch and learn from us. Never shrug your shoulders and say, oh, better do as I say, not as I do. That's the kind of attitude that gives Christianity a black eye. Hey, when we call ourselves Christians, people have the right to expect something from us. I like this little rhyme. You are writing a gospel. A chapter each day by the things that you do and by the words that you say. Others read that gospel, whether faithless or true, say, what is the gospel according to you? Paul continues, you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. In a very short amount of time, the church in Thessalonica had gained a regional influence. They developed a reputation. Thessalonica was a city within the province of Macedonia. Achaia was the province just south. Paul was writing from Achaia, from Corinth. Thessalonica was still the buzz 200 miles away. It was a happening church. Everyone knew about it. It was a divine hot spot. And notice what caught everybody's attention. We're told they received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, the hostility against Christianity was great there in Thessalonica. When the Jews arrested Jason, they drug him through the streets. All he did was offer Paul a room. 
They were treating him as if he were Macedonia's most wanted. You see, this church in Thessalonica was made up of wartime babies. You know, as in London in World War II, Germany's bombings didn't stop the babies from being born. And so it was with this church. It was still growing. People were being born again, even while they were under attack. But even their much affliction couldn't overshadow the joy of the Holy Spirit. You see, this is what makes Christianity so unique and so powerful. Our faith doesn't promise us the absence of conflict. To the contrary, Jesus in John 16, verse 33, he guarantees us in this world, you will have tribulation. Tough times will come. Hey, if they persecuted Jesus, man, they'll do it to you. If you're looking for smooth rides and calm seas, don't sign up for the Christian cruise. Christianity is about peace and joy in the midst of conflict. The Holy Spirit brings supernatural joy independent of our circumstances. I love how Jesus finishes his promise in John 16. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Despite all this trouble, be of good cheer. Take your joy from Jesus. I heard it put this way. Jesus promised three things to his disciples. First, they would be ridiculously happy. Second, they would be completely fearless. And third, they'd be in constant trouble. (laughs) Paul says in verse 8, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth. Literally a trumpet blast has carried the news of their triumphant faith. Not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. And I love what Paul says next. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. Their lives said it all. Even though they had been Christians just a short time, everyone knew that their faith was real. Their lives had been changed. I heard of a renowned chef who resigned from his prestigious post. He had worked as the personal cook for the royal family. And when asked why he quit such a lucrative position, he replied, When dinner is good, the boss never praises me. And when it's bad, he never blames me. It's just not worthwhile. Now, isn't that interesting? When it got right down to it, the chef didn't much care whether he got praised or blamed. He just wanted what he did to really matter. And this is what the Thessalonians had found in Christ. All of a sudden, their empty lives counted. They mattered. They now carried great weight. Though they were under the gun, though the persecution was great, so was the joy. And they were being a witness for Jesus to both their friends and even throughout the surrounding regions. Their lives really now mattered. In the beginning, Paul may have had to leave this church in the middle of the night, but there was nothing shady now about how they were living their lives. In the kingdom of God, the church in Thessalonica had become a bright spot on the map. I hope the same can be said for Calvary Chapel. Do we rest in God's grace? Are we known for our work of faith and our labor of love and our patience of hope? Do we consider one another as beloved brethren? Do we receive the word even in the midst of affliction? Hey, are we characterized by the supernatural joy of the Holy Spirit?
And does the life we live speak louder than the words we speak? Paul slipped out of Thessalonica on a dark night, but the church he left behind became a bright light. May we also be a bright spot in this dark world. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Beginning this morning and every week that we're in 1 Thessalonians, I want to do something special. I want to give an invitation. And so this morning, we're going to do it just real briefly. We're not going to drag it out. It's not going to be a long ordeal. But every week while we're in 1 Thessalonians, I'm going to give you an opportunity to give your life to Jesus if you haven't already. And so this morning, right now, if you... If you've never given your life to Christ and you'd like to do so this morning, we had someone stand up in the first service. But if you'd like to give your life to Christ this morning, I want you just to stand up right where you are. And together, you and I, we're going to pray a prayer and we're going to ask Jesus to come into your heart. Is there anybody here this morning that that would say, yes, I, I want to give my life to Jesus? If you just stand up right now, we'll pray together. Anybody? Okay, we're going to give you another chance next week in 1 Thessalonians. If we're back, if God gives us a chance next week, we'll, we'll, we're not guaranteed that, but uh, if we're back next week, we'll give you another chance. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we, we pray that as we go through this letter, Father, that your word would go through us, that it would check our hearts and our motivations and our ambitions And Lord, that you would use your word to purify us and strengthen us. Lord, we want to be a bright spot in this world. We want to be a church like the church at Thessalonica, known for our work of faith and our labor of love and our patience of hope. Lord, please work in our hearts this morning. Father, encourage us this week. We love you, Lord. We desire to praise you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.